For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday <coughs> night, and see if I can do the half tower now. I'm stuck in the house all day long anyway, um, which of course is the uh, story of Deborah Dvorah. This is being sponsored by the Raidens, Evan, Dina Raiden. If my health hadn't taken a turn uh, towards surgery, I was supposed to be at Zev Raiden's house this coming Shabbos in Boca, speaking there, but that's not going to happen. Um, but let me at least <clears throat> take a look at the Aftar, because this is, happens to be Pasha's Bajalch, is Zev Raiden's uh, Bar Mitzvah Sedra. And he did. Uh, and of course, we have the longest Haftorah, as everybody knows, the story of Devorah and Barak and Sisra and the Shiraz Devorah. So uh, let's take a, a look at that. We're looking here at one of the more remarkable stories in the book of Shoftim, where you have this cycle where the Jewish people screw up, they get oppressed by some Geisha ruler. They eventually hit rock bottom. They cry out to God and do teshuva, what you and I would call teshuva meira, but that's good enough. And then God sends a savior and destroys the oppressor, and then things go back to normal. Eventually, the Jews screw up again. So part of that is our haftorah this week, except with a twist, because uh, the bad guys are not the... uh, enemy invaders from afar, but rather <clears throat> um, the Palestinians, you might say, the Canaanim. Uh, as is often the case, the Haftorah omits the very beginning ba- historical background. If you look at what we call Perak Dal in the Book of Shoftim, you'll see it says, Vayasif b'nei Yisraelasas harabbeni Hashem, Ehud Meis, that they had been saved previously from Moab by Ehud, but then they screwed up again, they went up with Azar, and therefore, Vayiv Karim Hashem Biyad Yovin Melch Kenan Asher Melch Bechator, and his general Sisra. Okay? So, here we have something very interesting, because basically what happened is as follows. In the Chumash, Moshe Rabbeinu says, when you come to the land of Canaan, Get rid of all the goyim. Zero. Nobody should be left. Either kill them or chase them out, but get rid of them. But that is not what happened. And in the case of Chator, if you read the book of Joshua, Chator was a big fortress city in the Galil. Okay? If you go you go online, go on a map. You want to you wanna have a good map? Look up Shifta Yisrael. All right, that's a good map. And you'll see the Chatzor is somewhat near, I guess what we would call today, something in the area of Tzfas. Something like that. Okay? Something like Tzfat. <clears throat> All the way up north. And apparently it was a powerful business because in the book of Yeshua, he had a big war with them. It said Yeshua destroyed them, <clears throat> but he didn't exterminate them. And I'll say it again. Even though it's very cruel, it's repeated again and again in the Chumash 
You got to completely rid yourself of these people. Either kill them all out, men, women, and children. It says those words, men, women, and children. Or else um, <clears throat> chase them away. You know, you don't have to kill them, but you know, got to get rid of them. And um, it's cruel, but the consequences are more cruel. And this is played out in our Haftarah today because in the time of Yeshua, there was this war against the Yavin, the king of Chatzor. Yavin is like a title, like Pharaoh, you know. And Joshua eventually defeats them. And like I say, destroys Chatzor. I remember many, many years ago, the Israeli archaeologist led by Yigael Yadin, I think in the 50s, if I recall, dug up uh, the ruins of Chatzor. And, you know, you can go online and look for it. But they didn't get rid of everybody, and obviously the survivors, after the war, were able to regroup and eventually rebuild the city. And the Jews didn't bother them. And eventually the city got bigger and bigger, like the Arabs. And next thing you know, they're so big that they organized themselves into a very well-disciplined army. And then they conquered the Jews. So the situation was reversed. Not only was it that the uh, the Jews failed to get rid of the Canaanites, but in this case, the Canaanites became so strong eventually over several generations that had so many babies and so forth and so on that they now were a threat to the Jews. I don't know if they threatened everybody. Again, if you look at the map and you read the Haftorah today, and if I'm right, the Chatzor is located all the way up north near Tzfat, and if you realize the way the Shvatim were divided up in the time of Joshua, so the four tribes that occupy what you and I today would call the Galil, they're four tribes, um, and arguably a fifth. There's Naphtali, there's Asher, there's Vulan, and there's Yisachar. And on the other side of the Golan area might be done. So if you... <clears throat> Realize you're basically talking about Naphtali Asher, Zvulun Yisachar. So that's Barak. Come from Naphtali, you understand? So he's going to be the main guy fighting against uh, Sisera. Now the Canaanites not only were became so strong, but they came back, they revived themselves as a militarily disciplined state. So they had a militarily disciplined army, and the Hebrews did not. The Jews did not. This is during the period of the Shoftim. And if you'll recall, it says always in the Shoftim, Bayomi Mohim Ein Melch Yisrael, Ish Gechol Yashar There was no king, there was no government at all. Zero government, there's no income tax, no nothing. But on the other hand, there was no way to provide for the common defense. And if you attack one part of the country, the other parts didn't necessarily help. So, to use American geography, imagine if they attacked uh, Florida. The states in the north and the Midwest and the west wouldn't help. And the whole shot of having one single organized country is that if they attack one place, the whole country goes to stop it. When the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor, the whole country went to defend Hawaii. It's called World War II, you know, and we did. So, the Jews did not. 
That's part of what Devorah complains about. <clears throat> but in other words, I'm simply pointing out that the enemy here was not a foreign uh, kingdom like Moab or Ammon or Plishtib or Aram or one of those things. Midian, which the other Shoftim had to face. But it was something that was local, which need not have happened and never would have happened had Joshua and his generation done their job properly. If they completely destroyed and wiped out, let's just say for argument's sake, they would have exterminated the whole Chatzor kingdom in a time of Hoshua when they had the possibility of doing so. Obviously, a couple generations later, there would have been no Sisera and no Yavin to come and threaten the Jews. Okay? And we're told, of course, of the 900 chariots. And that raises the question, why do we read this Haftorah and this Parsha? There's supposed to be a connection between the par- <coughs> excuse me, the parsha of the week and the Torah. What exactly does Devorah have to do with Kriyas Yamsub and Moshe Rabbeinu and Bashalach and the Mon and all the rest of it? And the answer is that the story of Deborah is like a milder version of the story of Moshe and the Kriyas Yamsub, at least the way we understand it. Because what exactly happened? There was this um, cancer, really, that arose in the Galil of this kingdom of Chatzor and this army under uh, Sisera. If you go by the Targum Yodosim, I mean, he had tens of thousands and thousands and thousands of men. It's like crazy. But even if you don't go with that, if he had an army of 900 chariots, Jews had nothing like that. So it's like, you know, you have cavalry and they have tanks. Who's going to win? Um, this is the same thing that happened with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had 600 chariots and Jews had none. Sisera had 900 chariots and Jews had none. So there's the parallel between the two stories. And also, if God intervened, which happens in both occasions, one in more dramatic fashion than the other, but nevertheless, in two dramatic fashions, if God intervenes, he can turn the enemy tanks into liabilities, and that's what happens because of the water. Obviously, in the case of Paro, as we know, they get swallowed up by the Red Sea. In the case of Sisera, as we understand it, uh, doesn't say it exactly, but certainly hints to it very much so, and, and the general understanding is that the army of Sisera was defeated by nature. By the elements. If you <clears throat> look at the story in Peredal Pasik Tesvav 4.15, when it comes down to having the actual battle, it says, interesting, Vayoham Hashem, his sister of his Kolarechev, his Kolamachne, Lefi Cherev, Lefne Barak, Vayir's sister, Mialam, Rekav, Yonis, Braglov. So the language is very ambiguous. Vayoham, that God confused. Now, that's the word I use. But Vayoham is like one of those words that appear a grand total of twice. So we associate it with a Mahoma or something like that. But the Balaturim says, and I'm looking at the uh, Mikras Gedolos with the Nakudos. So I'm looking at the Balaturim and it says, Vayoham based on Masoris. The word Vayoham appears twice in the entire Bible. 
Vayom is Machne Mitzrayim, Vayom is Sisra. In other words, in Parshish B'Shalach and in this Haftorah today. Now, what does it mean in Parshish B'Shalach? It means that Hashem sent, um, you know, the, the wheels broke off and they got in the water and they couldn't get out. So it's the idea of, of being confused and destroyed associated with water. And that's what it means here also. In other words, I'm quoting now the Balatorim. Kamosha Bakan Hoy Amud Anon Yorid Malachlech is a carcup, but say a tit, that there was a sudden storm of some storm or another, a, a storm, and it turned the ground into mud. And then on the other hand, now he's being very imaginative here. He's saying that it was, you know, really a miracle. It was a storm, and then there was some kind of a fire, let's call it lightning. Uh, which heated up the ground that was wet, and burned the, the, the hooves of the horses and drove the horses crazy. But the key point is that um, uh, God set this up to... Um, situate the battle in such a place that the water and the storms and the floods could effectuate the destruction of Sisera's army, even though it was much larger and more powerful than Barak's 10,000 men. And this you can tell from the beginning of the story because it says Devorah calls Barak. Uh, Barak, as we all know, is a general of, um, of Naphtali, and I told you, look at that map online, and you'll see Chatzar is located in the area of Naphtali. So they were the ones who were totally being crushed and screwed by the Canaanites for 20 years. And Devorah doesn't live there. <clears throat> Deborah's a prophetess, and she lives in Har Ephraim. So again, I conjure you to, to look up the map, and you'll see, because most people don't know this, <clears throat> that Ephraim where she lived, is very far away. It's in central Israel, not too far from Jerusalem. You know, not too far away. In the belly of the Shomron, um, center Israel. Now, just north of Benjamin. Uh, so she's far away. But she was a Navi, and God told her what to do. And the Frum interpretation is that the Jewish people being crushed and, and tortured by the uh, Canaanites under Sisera, finally did Teshuvah. And when they did Teshuvah, even though it's Teshuvah Meira, because they're only doing because they're being crushed by the guy, but okay. Uh, so then God tells Devar, okay, now that the people have repented, I'm going to reverse things, and you're going to wipe out uh, Sisera. And she therefore calls... Um, Barak, to travel all the way south. So you're going from near Tzfas to, I guess you'd call today Beitel, one of those places my son took the letter of the trip on, Beit Haron. You know, that's where Devorah was, was hanging out. Okay? Uh, Devorah was in the Via, as we all know, and she was also loaded. I mentioned in podcasts in the past you take a look at the uh, Targum Yonason, which is very interesting. 
and it talks about all of her successful real estate speculations. So she was loaded. You know, her, her husband was what he called the husband of a great woman. He was a nobody. So, but she was a big deal. And she was in the via and a chauffettes and all the rest of it. And she calls this guy at God's command to travel all the way south from Sfat all the way down to, uh, you know, central Israel, where she, so it's quite a journey. And then she says to him that uh, God has appeared to me and told me that you're going to go and fight and defeat uh, uh, Sisera. Now she's far away from the battlefield. Again, you look at the map, uh, again, shift to Israel, look at the map, and you'll see that the area of the fighting is is all the way up in the north of Galil. Let's put it this way, north of the Kinneret. You understand? Um, but nevertheless, she's telling what God did. And she even tells him where to have the battle. That's the point I wanted to bring out. And I will draw to Nachal Kishon, which is a place with a river or something like that, a valley. So I'm citing the battle. Now, why would she or God cite the battle? When you know where the, this is very important, when you know where the battle will actually be fought, that gives you a gigantic advantage in terms of organizing and setting your plans. Knowing where the battle will actually be fought is of extreme importance in military affairs. And here Hashem is saying, I, God, will draw towards you Now, in retrospect, the reason Hashem said, I want you to have the battle in this Nachal Kishon is because it lends itself to flash floods and things like this. And so he will come with uh, 900 chariots, but they will become a burden to him once the uh, flash flooding occurs. And that's what happened. So by Yoham, when it says in Pasuk 15, that God confused them, it means that he sent lightning and thunder and, and, and storms, a hurricane, you might say. And once it's a hurricane, so okay, you know, um, the, the, the chariots are, are, are a pain in the neck. Notice, they can't travel, they're stuck in the mud. If you're stuck in the mud, you're a sitting duck for the enemy. The whole point of a chariot is you have mobility and power and lethality. But if you have no nobility, no mobility, then you lose your power. And it's the other side, the 10,000 men of the Jews, who are mobile because they're not in chariots, they're on foot, and they can walk through the mud or whatever they did. And therefore they were able to defeat the Sisera. And it says, So you kind of get the impression that Sisera's army was well-trained for a very specific type of warfare, which was very effective. And that was chariot warfare. <clears throat> In the ancient world, you've seen the movies sometimes. If you got a chariot, the horse and moon fist, especially you have those mumsers, those, those chariot wheels with the knives sticking out and stuff like that, they can do some really messy, bloody business. Uh, and I'm sure, since they talk over and over again about his 900 chariots, he had them very skilled and organized. The way you'd have a, a very skilled and organized armor commander like General Patton or something like that, who knows how to use, you know, mobile, uh, you know, offensive weapons. But that's all he knew. And if the weather uh, out of nowhere turned bad on him, 
then his weapon was was uh, destroyed, useless, a burden, and that's how Barak won. Now, Barak said to Devorah, and I think everybody knows this from uh, high school when you learned it, that he's I'm not going without you. So remember, he's hundreds of miles away in Ephraim when he talks to Deborah. And she said, I want you to go back north, raise 10,000 men, uh, march to um, Nachal Kishon, and you will have a great victory over Sisra. But Barak was so afraid, he said, I'm only going if you'll go with me. So you're a woman, but I want you to travel with me north from all the way through Ephraim, all the way through Menasha, through Yisachar, all the way to Naphtali to my area. And I want you there in the battlefield. And she said, I'll go, but famously speaking, she said, you won't get any glory. Okay? Now, I always wonder about this. Let me put it this way. From a frummy point of view, from a very frummy point of view, what, he did it for the glory? You understand? No, he did it because they saved the Klai Yisrael. He did it Lishma. Is he a tzaddik or not? We wouldn't say today, you're doing it for the glory. If I told you I know a soldier and he did it for his glory, you would, you know, from a Muslim point of view, you'd say that's a negative. But uh, obviously, you know, uh, he was that type of guy. It's all we can say. So he was a good man, but he wasn't, uh, you know, how should I put it, like the Chavetz Chaim or somebody like that. Otherwise, he would have said, I don't care about the glory. Um, and she says something very interesting. And she says, I'll go with you. But you won't have any teferis. You won't have the glory. You hear this? It's through a woman God will sell out Sisra. Now, what is this talking about? The Radak and the others, they all argue over this. But the, w- without getting into the nitty-gritty of that argument, uh, the bottom line is, Sisera goes down because of two women, which in the Middle East was considered a big disgrace, is anti-macho. You understand? And in the biblical times, it was still a macho. Uh, you're defeated by a man. You're defeated by a woman. Ew, that's disgusting. You know, didn't have modern political correctness. Now, how is Sisera defeated by a woman? Number one, Devorah is going to be on the battlefield. So you can say, In other words, she didn't do the actual fighting, I don't think, but her presence on the battlefield, you know, bucked up the soldiers, the 10,000 Jewish soldiers, and gave them their courage, because she was in the via, and, and they won. But even more than that, how does Sisra actually go down? Well, Yael, she's a woman. So in other words, Sisra had it like a funny death. From the macho point of view, the perfect death for him would have been to go down fighting on the battlefield. That's the old-fashioned way of a glorious death. Uh, how does it go with Horatius? How can a man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his father and the temple of his gods. Remember Horatio and the Romans? That's the old-fashioned way. But you know and I know, in point of fact, what happened, he ran away, he hid with this woman, um, and she, you know, she got him drunk or asleep, and then she busted his head open 
with a ten peg. Say he had a a funny and therefore an inglorious death. An inglorious death. Okay? So Cicero will always be associated in history, not with the brave warrior that he may have been. Just because he was bad to the Jews doesn't mean he was a great war that he was not a great warrior. But we're always going to say, oh, Cicero's the guy who went down with Yael when she gave him, you know, the the stuff to drink and who knows what she did with him, you know, the Chazals. The bottom line is, he had a funny and a weird death. Okay? Um, when he went down, when he was killed, then they, it seems anyway, they, uh, what do you call it? I mean, the language is very ambiguous, but it seems that they finish off the job. Because it says, That God subjected, made them humble, before the Jewish army, in other words, they sustained a big defeat. So it sounds like, and I see the unfortunately don't, don't discuss it, it sounds like the Jews underwent this time a campaign of extermination. That's what it seems like to me. That uh, the language is, the Jews got tougher and tougher on them. Notice they chased them from place to place, and town to town, and cave to cave, and killed them all out. Till they did chorus on him. And it doesn't mean Yavin Mel Kanan, it means the whole kingdom. So that so basically, the Jews are like this. We made a mistake back in the time of Joshua. It's like Mayor Kahana, you know what I mean? Like Rabbi Kahana. He says, we made a mistake back in the time of Yoshua, and now it came to bite us. We're not going to make that mistake again. We're going to wipe these people out. So no, there will never be in the future anybody coming against us from uh, from the kingdom of Chatzor or any, any, any junk like that. So the reason we do this Haftorah because we have a parallel story that um, it's not identical, but it's parallel. In the case of Paro and the Chumash, the army very dramatically chased the Jews into the Red Sea and then the sea fell upon him and wiped him out at one blow. In the case of Sisra, again, he had the advantage of the chariots, just like Paro had the advantage of the chariots. But the chariots proved to be of no avail because of the elements. Once it turned into mud and that sort of thing, the chariots became immovable objects, and the people in the chariots were sitting ducks. Uh, and that's what enabled the Jewish army to defeat them. So when Devorah said that Hashem has told me to tell you, Baruch, go raise an army and defeat the enemy, I mean, Hashem knew, obviously, that he's going to employ the rain and the elements to destroy the chariots. Baruch didn't know that, and Baruch simply was afraid he might be defeated unless he had this holy woman with him, and she went. Okay? Now, the whole story, therefore... Is one and, and incidentally, when the enemy flees, um, let's put it this way. Uh, let, let, let me uh, clarify. Uh, she said, "I want you to raise an army of ten thousand men." Vlokachta aseres alofim ish v'mnei naftolim v'mnei zvulin. I told you. It's very interesting. 
You really, if you want to understand this Haftarah, look at the map, look at the map, look at the map. Go online and get Shifte Yisrael or Chalukah Sa'aretz. Either way, you'll see the map of the of the tribes. And you'll see, as I told you before, that there are four tribes in the north. There's Naphtali, there's Asher, there's Yisachar and Zvulun. Now, Asher is on the Mediterranean Sea. So it's what we would call today, you know, Akko and north of Akko and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's along the seashore. But Naphtali was more inland um, towards towards the Golan Heights, let's put it this way, facing the Golan Heights. Uh, below Naphtali and Asher are the two tribes of Yisachar and Zavulun. Uh, they have small pieces of territory. She says, I want you to raise an army of 10,000 men from two tribes. Naphtali, well that makes sense because they're Johnny on the spot. Chatzor and Sisra was in the area of Naphtali. And Zvulun is adjacent. Um, the other tribes are not mentioned. Nevertheless, when you get to the second half of the Haftarah, the victory song, the Shiraz Devorah, she talks about other tribes, some of which she cusses out, and some of which she praises, or at least praises a little bit. Okay? And she certainly cusses out Ruvain, for example. But if you look at the map of the tribes, you'll see Ruvain was pretty much about as far away from this scene of the fighting and the whole incident with with Sisra as you could be. Ruvain is on the other side of the Jordan, on the other side of the Yamamelech. Okay? Uh, very far away. So, Devorah is saying, I'm a Shofetis, why didn't you come and help, even though you're living far away? On the other hand, she does praise certain tribes, like um, Mini Ephraim, Achrecha Binyamin, uh, Machir, that's uh, Menashe, Yisachar, I told you, she wanted Zvulun, but Yisachar is next door. Okay? But not Ruvain, for example. And certainly not Don, and so forth and so on. Now, why did she mention these other tribes? They were not part of the battle. So the best way to understand this is, they were part of the battle Jewish style. Meaning, once you had the big battle, and the, the army of Canaan under Sisra was busted by the elements, by the rainstorm, and the uh, chariots got stuck in everything, uh, then the army fled, including the general Sisera. Now, where'd they go? They ran all over the place. Look at the map and see where Nachal Kishon is, and you'll understand that they ran in different places in the north, uh, hoping not to get killed. That's when these other tribes showed up to finish off the ones running away. Now, you might say that's a chicken type of a battle. There's truth to that. But you know they but nevertheless at the end of the day they helped also. They helped cut off the stragglers as we would say. This is similar to what we're going to read when you talk about Gideon and he fought the Midianites and um again he had a small number of people do the actual fighting when the danger was the greatest. But once he started winning 
and it was clear where the victory is going to go, a lot of people from the Jews showed up um, to attack the stragglers. The Arabs do this in their way as well. So it's not exactly what you call heroic. On the other hand, boy, that's a good job too. And they deserve a pat on the back as well, since they did participate in the battle, at least to some degree. Um, Oru Meiroz, the town of Meiroz, she cusses out and curses, because they were right near the battle and they didn't do anything. They watched the battle from their houses like we watch a football game, you understand? And that's wrong for Jews. So you see that the Iker by uh, Devorah was, at least you should participate. You understand? Even if you don't participate in a heroic capacity, but you should participate. It's like saying today, someone should join to face the Israeli army. He said, well, I'm just going to be a jobnik. You know, uh, you know, be in the office or something like that. Well, that's important too. Every, at least you're participating, you see? At least you're participating. It's that kind of an attitude. So, um, in the case of Moshe and Paro, you had none of that because it was all Menashemayim. In the case of Devorah, it's less than the miracle of Parsha Bishal, but it's along the same lines. Oh my goodness, I see I've gone long anyway. Uh, this is the way, in my opinion, you should try to understand the events of the Haftorah today. And uh, the bottom, the, the most important part is we won in the end. So whether it was done with a greater miracle or a lesser miracle, a more dramatic type of flooding like happened with Paro's army, or a less dramatic but nevertheless extremely effective kind of flooding happened with Sisu's army, at least at least the Jews won. That's the key point to take from all this. Uh, I see I've gone for a long time, so I'll leave you with that thought. Um, it's very interesting, Haftorah, um, especially when she gives out the praises and the curses. But the key element is what I just laid out for you. And with that, I want to thank the Raidens once again. To Samadina, I wish, as I said before, that I was in a situation to go to Boca this week, but of course that's not going to happen. But uh, I do thank them for his sponsorship, especially for Zev's uh, Bar Mitzvah Parsha. And with that, I bid everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.